The following audio is via a Skype call. When something beyond reason happens, it turns skeptics into believers. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson's Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Saturday. Happy weekend to you, wherever you may be. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour. And thank you, Dexter, for that nice drop. We used Dexter because we couldn't find any quotes from Fred Nethel. So <laughs> that's as far back as we're going to go in TV history. And we're delighted to be working once again with tall guy Nathan at the board. He does yeoman's duty, keeping us on the air and on an even keel every Saturday. Good to talk to you again, Nathan. Good morning, Gary and Suzanne. I'm doing very well and also very relieved to know that I don't have to worry about calling my cardiologist after watching a Seahawk game this Sunday. Uh, oh, yes. Well, you see, I, I consider that to be sort of cosmically stage managed. I watch that as well <laughs> as I, I think the Seahawks love to just get themselves in that position because it's grooved into their brains. And so they pull these off much like and I'm going back. Speaking of old TV, if you used to watch games, including the early years of Monday Night Football, the old Oakland Raiders were well known for doing that. They'd get themselves in harm's way and just when things were looking dark and the times were at their most desperate. They would pull that rabbit out of their hat and whether it was by luck, uh, ingenuity or downright cheating, they would win. <laughs> <laughs> at one time, believe it or not, this is incredible statistically. When if you, from the start of Monday Night Football back in what 1970, the Oakland Raiders were known for many years as the kings of Monday Night Football. In the first 20 appearances on Monday Night Football, the Oakland Raiders were 18 wins, one loss, and one tie. That is phenomenal. And you don't see anything like that anymore. But you see flashes of it, a la the Seattle Seahawks, with their particular panache there, especially with Russell Wilson under center. And they made it happen once again. So that's they're always a fascinating team to watch. And they, uh, they, they carry a lot of energy, and they have a certain vibe. I can tell you, Nathan, that they have many, many fans around the country, including here in Florida, yes. where the Seahawks are a much bigger draw than the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or the Miami Dolphins. Right. The 12th right. man is a very big culture in the football area, especially in Seattle. And, man, it's hard to believe they're 5-0 and right now, especially with all the stress and anxiety and scariness of the fourth quarter. Like, are they going to win? Are they going to lose? Oh, no, they're coming back. It's this big emotion of roller coaster big roller coaster of emotions I mean and I think the only I'm sorry to say that was not as stressful game was when they played your Miami Dolphins and that was kind of an easier one to watch sorry to say I'm sorry that you said they're my Miami Dolphins yeah, so am I. I, I claim no pride of ownership in that we, regard we don't live near Miami <laughs> and that's it when you're on the Gulf side of Florida as we are residing as we do in Sarasota you're a world removed from Miami, and yet there are occasionally, especially people who moved over from the Atlantic side to the Gulf side, who retain that loyalty. You see it once in a while, but quite honestly, you don't even see that many Tampa Bay Bucks jerseys or license plate frames, etc. They just they don't have the following. Even with Tom Brady, which is going to be a short life phenomenon anyway, 
Uh, I think Tom Brady should have hung it up at the end of his Patriots career, if you ask me, which he didn't, so there. But I, I find that the Seahawks, you go to the mall around here, you go to Disney World in Orlando, and you've got people with Seahawks hats and jerseys. It's really something to see. And then we always go up to them and say, have you ever been to Washington? Where are you from? And, you know, all the rest of it. Once in a while, they say yes. Yeah. Most often, it's just their affinity with the Seahawks. Yeah. So here we are. Thank you, Nathan. Good to have you with us, as always. Today, we're going to talk to a gentleman who knows his way around a ghost. And I'm talking about none other than Neil McNeil. He's been on our show several times. Yes, he has. We've had the pleasure of talking with him, working in studio. And live, yeah. It's good to be able to get face-to-face with people. And I swear that's going to happen in our studio there in Factoria, across Lake Washington from Seattle. Someday we'll get back there. They're always doing something with the place. We'll see what the digs look like when we get back there next time, hopefully in 2021, once all of this is out of the way. My goodness. Let me give Neil McNeil his props, Suzanne, and then we'll get started. We're going to talk about some neat stuff today. A couple of different fields, as a matter of fact, but always metaphysical when we have Neil with us. Neil McNeil has worked in the fields of parapsychology, paranormal field investigation, and paranormal education for over 25 years. He is a consultant for television, film, and print media regularly lectures for paranormal conferences and professional organizations, and is often a featured guest for local, regional, and national news and radio programs. Neil is based in the greater Seattle area and is a member of the Rhine Research Center, the Parapsychological Association, and the Seattle Consciousness Education and Research Society. He co-founded the annual Port Gamble Ghost Conference, about which we will hear plenty He serves as the director of Paranormal Studies Institute and, in his spare time, co-directs the Parasci College. Neil McNeil, always a pleasure, and we're glad to have you with us once again. Well, good morning, or I should say good afternoon for you. Uh, Thanks. It's great to be back. How are you doing? Well, we are doing. We just we're we feel like at times I I never tire of using this phrase, Neil. We're holed up like the Dalton gang, despite <laughs> the laxity of restrictions or the lack of restrictions here in Florida, state government being what it is. People are going out there without masks. They do not maintain social distancing. We hear some people saying it's all a hoax there, but we take it seriously. And so Suzanne and I spend a lot of times, a a lot of our time actually agreeably indoors together. Good thing we're compatible. And we watch a lot of TV news. There's a presidential election on, you know, so we have been tracking. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been tracking that and doing our best to stay safe, well, and happy. How's about you? Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Doing pretty well up here in Washington, back where, where you spent some time uh, yeah, we're still uh, we're still working through the various stages of the uh, the uh, stay at home uh, sort of situation. But for me, for an introvert, that's actually not a bad thing. Um, and it's uh, it's been interesting because I think it's changed a little bit how we do ghost investigation now in the 21st century. So it's always uh, you can look at it as an interesting experiment uh, in stay at home investigation. How can you investigate from home, Neil? Because your investigations would involve, you know, um, electronic gear and going to a place and making recordings and taking photos. How how do you be able to conduct something like that from home these days? 
I think it's a little different for each group uh, or individual investigator, depending on their their particular methodology. I've known groups and individuals who are uh, still going out and maintaining their uh, their proper distance and masking up and gloving up and doing all that sort of thing. Um, and uh, and doing their investigations that way. And I've also known people who are doing it remotely by setting up, going out to the location and actually setting up remote cameras and microphones and things like that, um, and uh, environmental sensors that they can then, uh, through the wonder of technology and computers, be able to at least keep uh, some somewhat of a, a set of tabs there on what's going on at the location. I kind of um, prefer the old method. I'm, I'm an old-fashioned sort of guy, especially when it comes to investigative technique. I prefer how the Victorians did things because they spent a lot of time just with uh, a simple observation and interviewing. And that's sort of what, what uh, I do. So I'm always interested in talking with people about the experiences that they have had and getting as much detail as possible from the eyewitnesses because of course they were there and I was not. Um, and I think that's actually one part of investigation, modern investigation that's overlooked um, that the interview, uh, kind of taking, taking in what the witness has experienced and what they have to say and really getting in there and finding the details, mining, uh, for the, uh, those, uh, the things that they've heard, the things that they've seen, uh, felt and experienced or smelled, all of those kinds of things come into play. And, and oftentimes in the excitement of setting up uh, equipment and things like that, um, those little details get lost, but they're just as important. So those are those are some of the ways in which we're we're adapting paranormal investigation to uh, to this whole brave new world. Do you work with experienced investigators, or do you also work with groups that don't have experience, but they're interested in the topic? I do a little bit of both. Primarily, I work with uh, experienced, kind of seasoned or proven, investigators, uh, and that would either be the, the technical end of things or the psychic end of things. Um, I do like to know uh, a person's history as far as their investigative technique and their track record. Uh, but being an educator, I'm also very interested in helping people sort of break into the field. Uh, so if, uh, if I find somebody that really has a genuine interest um, and seems to be very responsible, I might, uh, I have on occasion taken a few students in under my wing and uh, brought them in on investigations, uh, low-grade sort of investigations that uh, let them cut their teeth on, uh, on the actual investigation process. I want to get specific with you, Neil. Electronic voice phenomena. Is it a technological breakthrough? Is it pure chicanery? Where do you land on that issue? Squarely in the middle. Uh, <laughs> Good place. I hope it's not a, a, one of those grape steak fences. You got to sit on the middle. That would be uncomfortable. It's it, well. Sometimes it is actually kind of uncomfortable having to to maintain that balance. Actually, um, I I do believe that electronic voice phenomena or electronic audio phenomena uh, is a real thing. I have many examples myself from my own investigations of things that were. Uh, audio artifacts that, that were recorded that were not heard or experienced at the time that they were being recorded. And um, so I absolutely believe that the phenomenon is real. However, uh, there are those out there who do like to doctor up their evidence or create it outright. I have run across that a few times in my career. Um, so I always have to get a lot of information, not only on the person who did the recording, but what the conditions were at the time of the recording, who else was there, 
what kind of equipment was being used, the type of microphone, all of those kinds of details. And uh, if that person cannot supply me with all of that information to satisfy my curiosity, then, you know, it might be a really interesting piece of evidence, but I can't give it a lot of credence if I don't know the provenance. Uh, and I can't actually uh, pinpoint that because, of course, I wasn't there. Um, but as I said, I do believe that it's a it's an actual phenomenon, whether or not it's coming from ghosts uh, on the other side uh, who are actually trying to communicate with us, or whether it's investigators or other living people who happen to be present who are using their latent psychic ability to imprint those messages on the medium. Um, that's up for grabs. We kind of have to dig a little bit deeper. Um, so again, yeah, it's a real phenomenon as far as I'm concerned, but you do have to check your sources. Have you ever used Frank's boxes, Neil, that where you're getting live um, recordings in the moment? Yeah, I used Frank's box. I handed it right back to him, um, actually. I, I don't I don't actually believe in using those particular devices. I think that the the randomization of the signals that are coming in, you cannot account uh, for variable radio frequencies, uh, could be baby monitors, could be CB radios. There's a number of things, you know, flying through the air uh, that can actually be picked up by those devices. And to say that a recording made with one of those, if you hear something that comes through, to say that that's an actual ghost's voice uh, or is paranormal uh, in origin is a huge leap. I'm, I'm actually not a fan of using them because they are so unpredictable and you can't really control for the variables involved with those kinds of devices. I appreciate your integrity in that regard, Neil. And let me just ask you, I want a little inside scoop here. When you handed the box back to Frank, did he express any disappointment and or annoyance? Nobody tried to sell me a bridge. Uh, <laughs> no, I actually, I don't know the creator of the Frank's box, um, obviously, but uh, I know that there's a lot of these devices out there uh, to be had, and they're actually very expensive in, in many cases. These, these people are asking for quite a lot of money, and when pressed... Uh, for information on the technical specs and how they they come to the conclusion that it does what it actually does, more often than not, they're not able to provide that sort of information. So it's it's really it, it's really buyer beware in this situation. Neil, I want to ask you if you think that the ghosts that you have come across in your paranormal investigations have always at one time been living human beings? Ooh, that's a very interesting question. I'm not sure anybody's actually uh, asked me that uh, in that way. I'll sort of take this apart, if I may. I believe that some of them, I, I, I don't know if I can if I can scientifically divide this up into, into percentages, but let's just say for the sake of argument that uh, a third of them are from from folks that I believe used to be living. There is a, another group, the second group, that I believe are from the living who are inadvertently, subconsciously responsible for these kinds of recordings, these kinds of noises and voices. Uh, that includes the investigators themselves. I've had a couple of cases where it was quite clear that the investigator was the one that was uh, in an unintentionally, subconsciously, probably creating at the, at the root of the, the cause of the, the recording. 
And then I believe it's also possible for there to be recordings or glimpses or snatches, snippets of future events. That, In other words, the recording is actually getting something from someone or something, an event that happened further on down the timeline. Um, that's that's uh, kind of a, a far out there idea. There is some evidence to suggest that that might be possible. Um, and I can't say that I have any definitive proof about that. But I think that by and large, most of what we're recording, uh, if it can be seen as paranormal and all other natural uh, causes can be ruled out, if we can say that it is probably paranormal, that most of the time it's actually somebody who was living at one point. You know, I'm really glad that you put it that way and said what you said, because as human beings, it's pretty easy for us to look backwards. I remember when I was in grammar school and high school and college and various places I've lived, I can't look forward and say, you know, in the future, I'll be living in another city, in another state, in another home with any kind of accuracy. You know, I can't, I can't go that way. But when you think about a piece of earth, when you think about a location, a location that at one time might have been Native American um, land where they hunted, and then later it becomes a, a farm where some people built a farm, and then later than that it becomes a city. In that one location, you could have several things that have occurred there, and you could be looking, if you, if you were able to tap into the energy that's there, it could be energy from the past, and it could be energy from the future. So I'm, I'm glad that you said that, even though it's a lot harder concept to wrap your mind around. But, I, but I'm glad that comes up for you that way. You know, there is some evidence that, that points to, to that, or at least suggests that that's possible. I know that many of the, um, or at least few of the sessions that were done in the Stargate project with remote viewing, the remote viewers actually were able to um, remote view not just the location, um, but a specific time. And usually it was in the past, but there were occasions where they were actually seeing buildings that did not yet exist. Um, and of course, at, at the time when, when the, the viewing was done, uh, the, the scientists looked at it and said, oh, well, uh, they don't know what they're talking about, or this was, this was a complete miss, and only to find out 10 years later that that particular building was put up in that spot looks just exactly like what the remote viewer had drawn or described. So I uh, really don't know what's going on there, but I think it's fascinating. And, and as somebody who, as a teenager, experienced precognitive dreams, um, I, I am one of those people that believe that the, the timeline, is, it's not an arrow. It's, it's much more fluid than that. I, I, I really do believe that. You know, that's where I get a little bit jealous of the dead in a manner of speaking. Hey, well, I'll get there. But I have gotten messages from mediums, and sometimes I have experienced a bit of paranormal activity. It's not a regular occurrence by any means, though for a time it seemed that it was. But when I think about this whole concept of time, I'll tell you, Neil, I don't see it as something linear either. I see time on the other side because I believe there are God knows how many dimensions to reality, not just this physical universe. But if time is fluid, 
maybe there is something to these reports I've gotten via mediums over the years that people on the other side see rather a blend of past, present, and future so that life just makes more sense when, as one relative of Suzanne's once said, coming through a medium, now I see the big picture. And they see it in a way that we don't necessarily do that, no matter how astute we may be. I think that's a great point of view, and and I would tend to agree with you there. I'm I'm certainly no expert on temporal mechanics or <laughs> anything like that. Uh, it's just from what I've read and what I've experienced myself. I think there's more to it than 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 what the popular concept would say. You know, before we go to break, Neil, which is still a few minutes off. I know that you're going to be part of this um, Port Gamble Ghost Conference, and I think before the break, it would be good for you to talk about the who, what, when, where, why, and how that's going to happen. Uh, yeah, well, actually, the Port Gamble Ghost Conference, uh, this will be its 11th year. Um, we celebrated the, the, the 10, 10 year mark last year with a big blowout, and we're trying to trying to do the same. Um, there's a gentleman in charge of that uh, by the name of Pete Orbea, who runs Port Gamble Paranormal. And he took over the conference and all things paranormal in the town of Port Gamble, which is on the uh, Olympic Peninsula here in Washington State, and runs that conference. This year, of course, because of the pandemic and lockdowns, um, it was not going to be possible for people to come to the town uh, to hear speakers and take workshops and classes and, of course, uh, participate in investigations of, of some of the haunted buildings in town. Uh, but it did seem like it was that the, the idea of doing this virtually um, could actually work very well uh, for, for the same reasons I mentioned earlier about some investigation groups going in and setting up cameras and audio and things like that. So what Pete has done is actually provided a virtual ghost conference that anyone can attend. So this this invitation basically is going out beyond the Puget Sound area. And uh, anybody within the sound of my voice can uh, can register online and take part in the conference, which is a, a three-day affair that happens uh, coming up in just a couple of weeks, actually. Um, and uh, it's uh, the 6th through 8th of November and has gone completely virtual. So they will be able to sign up and listen to speakers. They will be able to take workshops and classes. Uh, a friend of mine and colleague, uh, Ankash Amente, who has also been on this program, a psychic medium, will be doing a gallery reading, a virtual gallery reading. And there will be investigations of two of the locations in town, including the infamous Walker Ames mansion. So it's really a unique opportunity, and I'm very, very glad that this year they're, they're going to be able to do it this way. I am so happy every time I hear you talk about the Port Gamble Ghost Conference, because if God wanted to create a venue for that kind of event, it would be Port Gamble, Washington. I have been through town, not really stopping there because I was several on my times. way to, to, to yeah. squim, but several times. And there are a few things you folks, if you haven't been there, that you need to know. One, the Port Gamble Ghost Conference is famous for its integrity and general eeriness as uh, masterminded by a guy like Neil McNeil. So there's that. But also, it's a, a town that has really a, a sense of being out of time and out of place. Port Gamble is a town where if you're going to approach it on that narrow highway, two lanes, 
It says 30 miles an hour, and they mean 30 miles an hour. <laughs> so don't go 31. You might think about going 29, but 30 is the target there, and they're pretty strict about enforcing. And I haven't gotten a ticket or anything, but I know how seriously they take that as a safety measure in their little community. But I find that Port Gamble, and Neil, you know this better than most, it is a town that evokes New England of a bygone era and would be a marvelous setting for a Stephen King novel or movie. When you go there, you're stepping back into a gothic past, but the ghosts remain out of affinity, out of love for where they were, an unwillingness to move on, whatever the reason may be. You are working through the mists of time to get to the heart of Port Gamble. I think that's a wonderful description, and I and I agree with just about everything that you said. Port Gamble uh, it was a mill town that was uh, founded in 1853 uh, by people from Maine, and that's exactly why it looks uh, like a picture postcard from uh, the East Coast. It's a beautiful setting. It's been beautiful, beautifully preserved and cared for, and you really do feel like you are stepping back in time when you walk down the main street. I think that's one of the main attractions, not just for the living, but potentially for the ghosts as well. Um, and it absolutely has been the setting for several paranormally themed uh, novels, uh, television programs, uh, and movies as well have been shot there because it's so picturesque and so beautiful. What do you anticipate for this year's Ghost Conference? And before we go to break, and then we'll mention it on the other side again, because I want people to realize this is a genuine opportunity. How is it that you are doing it this year? There's been some talk of virtual attendance. Yes. Now, I'm not in, uh, involved with the administration of the conference at this point. Uh, it's been a few years since I've done that. But again, uh, Pete Orbea, uh, in charge of Port Gamble Paranormal, has been spearheading this. Um, all year trying to turn this into a virtual event. So basically, uh, as I understand it, there you can go to portgambleparanormal.com. That's portgambleparanormal.com. Uh, just Google that. It'll take you right to it. And it explains on the website exactly uh, what your general admission ticket gets you into and all of the goodies that you can add to that. And again, this will be done uh, sort of like a giant uh, uh, Skype or Zoom session uh, for each of the workshops and the events that are going on. Um, I'm, I'm not that good with the technical aspects of things, so I can't exactly tell you, but basically, as they say on the, uh, the website, the, it'll be a live feed done uh, via Zoom. So as long as you're able to, uh, to tune in and you've got a computer and a monitor, you should be able to be just fine. Very good. That's a very exciting okay. thing. And I'm glad that it's one of those traditions that... It holds up well, no matter what the circumstances. To hell with the pandemic. We've got the Port Gamble Ghost Conference, that and others like it. The Oregon Ghost Conference, throw them some love. They're fantastic as well. Our good friend Nicole Strickland has become a star presenter there. Neil, have you ever made it down there? Absolutely. I love the Oregon Ghost Conference. They've been going for several years. Um, I'm not sure exactly what their plans are this time around. I know uh, that it was uh, scheduled right at the outbreak of the pandemic. And so this year's uh, was canceled for 2020. I'm really hoping that things will be back to uh, relative normal and allow them to do 2021. Um, it's a wonderful venue in Seaside, Oregon, right there on the coast, beautiful area, lots of beach. Um, and it's a, it's a 
a fuller program um, done over a weekend. They have uh, more speakers, I think, than uh, than we've had at Port Gamble, um, but they they have it on a larger uh, scale, and um, so they're they're able to encompass everything that you could think of as far as metaphysical. So everything everything is fair game from UFOs to Atlantis and everything in between. Whereas Port Gamble, uh, we basically have have uh, concentrated on the, the paranormal aspects, the ghosts and the hauntings there in town. Um, but it's a wonderful conference and I hope that they will, if not be able to do it in person, be able to do something virtual as well for 2021. Well said. We are going to spend some more quality time with Neil McNeil on the other side of a short break. We're gonna talk us, um, well, is it tarot? Is it tarot? Tomato, tomato. We'll get to all of that. Neil McNeil has an intimate awareness and relationship to that many centuries old practice. And that will feature prominently when we come back to this issue, this edition of Manson Mitchell. So glad you're with us right here at Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. If you talk and they will hear you. We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy. So we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. So On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcome Alice Terry, international psychic medium from Australia and founder of Online Spiritual Boot Camp, who will take calls in the second half of the hour. On Saturday, Matt Swain makes his debut with great stories from his book, Haunted Rails. Halloween spookiness leaves the station early this year. 
bringing you fascinating talk one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Multicultural, multidimensional even. Alternative Talk 1150. The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Neil McNeil. Uh, Neil, if people would like to connect with you, find out more about the Ghost Conference, about the work that you do as a paranormal researcher, where are the best places for our listeners to find you? Well, basically everything is done social media now, so uh, really the the best way to get a hold of me is uh, at Paranormal Studies on Facebook. That's uh, that's where you'll catch me most often, basically. Um, or you can go to paranormalstudies.org, paranormalstudies.org. Um, so that's that's one way of, of getting hold of me. Um, I also have a, a new venture that's, uh, that's coming out this year and uh, a new website to go with that, uh, journeyworktoreau.com. I know we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, uh, but journeyworktoreau.com. As uh, another place that people can find me and uh, contact me and find out a little bit more about all of the weird and wonderful things that I've been very fortunate enough in my life to explore. Um, and of course, if they want to find out more about Port Gamble and the Ghost Conference, they just have to go to portgambleparanormal.com for the, uh, the go- virtual Ghost Conference that's happening November 6th through the 8th. My participation in this year's conference is actually as part of the paranormal boot camp section, which is a full day um, from the uh, what we call affectionately the League of Extrasensory Gentlemen. Uh, several of the uh, the more prominent or well-known uh, investigators in the the Washington, Oregon area, we've sort of come together and formed a loose brotherhood of paranormal investigation and um, are really keen on making sure that the, that uh, some very good investigative uh, education is out there. And that is what the boot camp is about. So if people are interested in learning about how to scientifically go about doing field investigation, uh, then they can take part in the virtual paranormal boot camp that's part of the Port Gamble conference this year. The League of Extrasensory Gentlemen. I yes. love that. I'm jealous that I'm not a member. I, I could put on my best suit and they wouldn't let me in the club. I think that's wonderful. I just love that. Maybe I could be Neil's guest. That'd be good. I won't spill my drink. I think that would be just wonderful to, that such a thing even exists is a beautiful concept. Tarot, tarot, call it what you will. Don't call it mere fortune telling or you're going to receive the back of Neil's metaphysical hand <laughs> because that's not his angle on this centuries old practice. Neil, tell us what the tarot means to you and particularly what occasioned your intensive return to it. Well, the tarot means an awful lot to me, actually. I've been reading tarot uh, for myself since I was 15 or 16. That's when I I got my first deck was in high school. I had some friends that were uh, readers, and they got me interested in that. And, of course, I was interested in all things metaphysical and paranormal, so it was a good fit. Um, And I found that it was – I was just fascinated with it. I was fascinated by the concept of these cards that have come down to us through centuries that uh, can tell us things about ourselves. I was fascinated by the the imagery, the symbolism, uh, the archetypes. I was fascinated by uh, the artwork itself. 
uh, many different decks have different styles. And so uh, there's a lot of, of different things to choose from visually uh, when it comes to tarot. So this interest last, had, has lasted uh, my, my whole life at this point. And I was reading for myself and family and friends for many, many years. And it was, it's kind of interesting. It's one of those uh, serendipitous things or maybe a synchronistic uh, thing that this year, because we're all in the lockdown, uh, my birthday is uh, at the end of April. And every year I tend to do a reading for myself on my birthday. It's just kind of a tradition um, that I had gotten away from doing. And I wanted to do that this year because here we are stuck at home, not being able to do our work and that sort of thing. And um, I, I, I got back into the cards and I got back, I, I got a feeling and a sense of what that had been like when I was younger and what it had meant to me and what it had done for me. And I thought at the time, you know, I always wanted to be able to do this for people. I wanted to be able to do this professionally. And I, I wonder if I could, if I could do that, would that be, uh, would that be kosher? Would that be okay? Would that be profitable? Could I, could I actually make a living uh, doing this sort of thing? And um, I was I was wrestling with with this. Should I? Shouldn't I? I can't do the work that I'm doing now because of the pandemic. It's unlikely I'm going to be able to go back to that work anytime soon. And um, while I was trying to make up my mind, I, I was I was going to to make a decision the, the following morning. And I'm lying there in bed, and we had one of those terrific thunder and lightning storms that we sometimes get here in the Seattle area. And I, I was enjoying it and immediately thought of the card. If you're familiar with the tarot, uh, there's a card called the tower or the lightning struck tower, which basically means um, here's, a, here's a bolt out of the blue that's shaking you up and getting you out of your, your normal everyday thing and routine and setting you on a different path. And I thought, well, if, if that's what I needed uh, for, uh, for a, uh, a big go ahead from the universe, then I'll take that as a, as a really good sign. And uh, the very next morning, after all this had happened, I, I had called up my friend Ankasha Mente, who I had mentioned earlier, psychic medium and also a tarot reader. And um, basically, before I could tell her any of this, she said, you know, I was sitting there thinking this morning at breakfast, and I thought, why isn't Neil reading? And I thought, reading the New York Times, what what are we talking about? She said, no, no, reading cards. I think you'd be really good at it. And I said, well, your timing is impeccable. Um, here's here's what I've been thinking. And so that's what I'm doing now. That's actually what I am debuting this fall uh, for the last couple of months to be doing uh, tarot reading professionally. And as you mentioned, um, I have a, a specific flavor, I guess, of reading, if you will, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are out there that are doing readings uh, for divination, for uh, prediction. Uh, they use a predictive model. They do uh, fortune telling and, and all of that is, is well and fine. And they do very successfully with that. My approach, um, having come from 16 years in alternative uh, health care, uh, is, is really about helping people and getting into people's uh, psychology and, and helping with the, with the everyday questions and decisions that we all have. And uh, that's what I've always used Tarot for, for myself. So I, I have a real, uh, a client-centered approach, I would say. It's, it's basically all about the, the person that's coming to the reading. Many times a, a sitter um, will come in and they, they want the, the, uh, the Tarot reader to just basically talk at them and tell them exactly what's going to happen and what they see in the cards. And I'm much more of an interactive participatory type of reader. 
So we really have a dialogue uh, I, that I have with the, with my clients. It's really a back and forth about what they see in the cards as well as what I see, how that makes them feel, what the images mean to them. Um, and so we work with the archetypes and we apply them to a person's life because I believe that's part of, of what the tarot was created for, uh, to represent the, the really big events and situations that we all face in our lives, as well as the, the day-to-day little decisions um, that, uh, that we all have to make that lead us on our path. So that's really what, that's really what uh, I want to offer my clients. Um, we're all on a journey. Uh, mythologist Joseph Campbell was was adamant about that when he wrote his uh, his books, uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and 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 all the mythology, uh, the world's mythologies basically tell us that each one of us is our is a hero, or a heroine, and we're all on our own path, we're all on our own journey, and it can be overwhelming, it can be scary, uh, like we're experiencing now, very unusual circumstances. And it can be very difficult to know whether we're really on the path or not and, and where do we need to go. And that's where the tarot really comes in. Um, I, I really believe that these are aspects of our own personality that we're looking at in the cards. And so it's very much like asking your own subconscious what to do. What do I really think is the best thing for me to do? Um, so again, it's it's a wonderful thing for me to be able to return to after 35 years to be able to do something that means a lot to me and hopefully brings a, a lot of meaning to other people as well. And I'm sure that you will return to a successful career or an avocation because you're a man of many talents and many involvements and you return to the tarot, I'm sure that uh, the energies behind the tarot welcome your return. I have no doubt of that. You spoke about a predictive model. I did want to get in this little anecdote, Neil. Mm -hmm. Many, many years ago, it was still the 1990s. I was between jobs, as they say. I was actually working part, part time, but needing to make a lot more money living as I was south of Seattle and in Puget Sound. You need to make money to, to get along most anywhere, but living ain't that cheap in Puget Sound. So I go, hmm, better figure out what I'm going to do here. I'd like to stay within a certain industry if I can. So I did a tarot reading for myself. It wasn't the full Celtic cross. I like this. I call it the, as a matter of fact, I think it's known as the horseshoe pattern so that you get a pretty good overview with some specificity included. And in the case of one card that I drew, it was the wheel of fortune, as it was called (laughs) in that deck. And I thought, well, now this is interesting. And it was upright. That's good news when you see that. Mm -hmm. And I thought the Wheel of Fortune, there's going to be the turn of a friendly card here. This is very, very interesting. I'll see this. This is an allegory there, which speaks to your own approach to the tarot. It's allegorical for me, and I am hopeful about what lies ahead in the next days and weeks as I continue this job hunt. Well, lo and behold, a former contact in the industry in which I worked had a choice to make. I didn't know anything about it at the time. But after I was hired a few weeks later, this lady said, it came down to you and one other person, and I decided to give the opportunity to you because the other person, though she was equally qualified, has bad teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God for modern dentistry. 
So <laughs> the wheel of fortune favored me, but there was a heads up from the universe or from the inner self, the higher self, telling me that there was something to which I could look forward. And I kept faith with that idea and it played out. This is not uncommon, but it isn't, if I take your meaning, Neil, it isn't necessarily to be expected, even though this work may originate and the progress you see coming from the subconscious mind as it makes things through symbols, through allegory, known to you in order for you to live a better life. Absolutely. Um, it, Carl Jung actually very much believed in the Turo, uh, thought that it was sort of a backdoor to the subconscious and that you could really learn a lot about yourself by using these images that have come down to us through centuries virtually unchanged in, in most cases, especially with the major arcana. Uh, uh, of the deck, that uh, that that these represent very basic, very primal, very fundamental aspects of ourselves. And so again, it's really like having a conversation with yourself, sitting down alongside yourself and saying, you know, I've got this situation, I've got this decision to make, what do I really think is going on? What are other options I may not have thought of? Um, that's kind of a big one. And to to some degree, it can actually point you um, in in the right direction for the future, as it were. But as we talked about earlier, um, I believe that the future is pretty fluid. Um, so I tend not to to use a predictive model so much um, because the reading that we're doing is at that moment as things are. And so we say that if we're making this particular decision based on on this, uh, reading as things are, if nothing changes, then this is the likely outcome. And of course, the further down uh, the timeline you go, the more variables come into into play that can change things. And you may, just by virtue of having had the reading, make different decisions or decisions that you may not have made yourself. Um, but I love that story about having the Wheel of Fortune show up uh, in your reading at that point and playing such an important role of bringing your consciousness to the forefront to say, the wheel really is turning, fortunes are changing, things are on the move, it's not going to be as it was. And I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to take away from that reading. Once again, well said, that's how I felt at the time. I can remember that moment like it was yesterday, even though, as I say, it was back in the 1990s. And this is all by way of encouraging people, which I do at every opportunity, to encourage people to take up some tool of divination. Tarot's a big one, maybe the biggest, but I like to throw some love at the I Ching as well. I've worked with that now for just about 25 years, and I have never found the I Ching to be in any sense wrong or off target or giving me a bum steer, nothing like that. As a matter of fact, Neil, what I've found that in the case of the I Ching, I have gotten myself in trouble after I have consulted it only if I did not heed a timely warning or thought that uh, I must be misunderstanding something instead of meditating on it and searching more deeply. That's when trouble would come. But the Yi Jing has pulled my fat out of the fire more than once. And in one case, it warned me of a thwarted physical assault in my hmm. interaction with a certain individual. And three days later, that incident occurred. All that happened ultimately was that I wound up with some wine thrown on my nice white shirt. 
there. So that went into the Goodwill bag. <laughs> Goodwill's going, thanks for nothing. But anyway, um, that did happen. It was a nasty exchange, but I was told, and I, I trusted the Yijing, I was told that there would be people who would take that matter under consideration in order to blunt this attack and the resentment behind it so that I was essentially protected from the consequences. And that's exactly what happened. So when you talk divination, you talk tarot, talk the I Ching, numerology, what have you, I'm a big fan because I've seen how many times it works for me. I think it's really important. I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's really important. Um, and I would encourage people to use some kind of, of tool to get in touch with with what's inside the part that we don't generally listen to on a day-to-day -day basis just as you did and it, it doesn't really matter whether it's a set of cards or coins or whatever it is i think it's just important that we sit and meditate um, regularly and learn to trust what comes out of it um, you know the subconscious is trying to tell us things all the time every night we dream and that's that's your mind's way of, of clearing house and uh, getting rid of stuff that we don't need or telling us things that that we probably need to know about. Um, and it's a very, very personal thing. If I dream about a, a, a rhinoceros eating a, an ice cream cone or something like that, it's going to have a completely different meaning to me than it would if you had that dream. And I think that any form of divination, as you say, whether it's tarot or aching um, or, or what have you, is that opportunity to find out what those things actually mean to you and then to, to listen to them and act on them. Um, I think I think it's absolutely appropriate that people do that. Um, if people would like to know more about my particular technique and, and what I believe, then, of course, they can go to journeyworktarot.com. Thank you. Do you use um, just uh, one or two decks, or are you somebody that has a whole box full of decks? I mean, what... <laughs> What is your what is your uh, favorite? Um, oh, you're among you're, all those? you're calling me out in my weakness. Um, well, I'm I'm an artist. I went through art school. I love and I really respond to the art in a lot of the decks that are out there. So yeah, I've got a I've got a pretty good collection on my shelf. Um, at this point, there's a, a deck that came out. I think it was just last year, 2019, um, called the uh, the the Golden Art Nouveau. Uh, deck, which just really speaks to me. The artwork is gorgeous. Um, it's almost like every card is an illuminated, a page from an illuminated uh, manuscript. Uh, but then I also go back to the the deck that I still have from high school, the Hanson Roberts uh, deck, which is which is actually my favorite. Um, I fell in love with those images and the color and the and the symbolism used in those. So, but that's what I use for myself. Um, I will absolutely use a deck uh, uh, for a reading that that my client and I feel is appropriate to them if they if they want that if not then I'll you know fall back on the on the the general deck that I that I use but I like to take that into account because I want people to be able to see as we're doing this via Skype or Zoom um, that they can actually see the cards and and if they've got a response um, an emotional response to to the artwork of a particular deck that's important and that's the one that we should go with because it has more meaning to them and therefore the reading will have more meaning be more meaningful for them absolutely so, yeah, i've gotten several several decks absolutely 
That's why, for general purposes, I have tended to stick with the Rider Waite deck. It's the same reason that I drink Jack Daniels. I know what I'm getting. <laughs> we, Good we've analogy. Managed, <laughs> we've managed to collect several de decks as gifts. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we um, I have not pursued it except with uh, one Hero's Journey deck that, that we got from uh, the Dream Doctor, Kelly Sullivan Walden. That's a, a deck where Gary and I just pull one card a week, but we've collected cards from various uh, people who have sent them, and they're all boxed up very pretty, but they haven't been used very much. And so I, as you're talking, I'm thinking, how many do we have? How many could I find if I wanted to put them all together? And, Four or five, I would and, think. And begin, you know, using that as a possibility. In fact, we talked about that early this morning, Gary. Oh, I think so. I encourage yeah. people to call you, too, Neil, because you take an elegant approach. Neil McNeil would be the last guy you would see pulling a, a raggedy old deck out of a shoebox. There you go. He's part of the League of Extrasensory <laughs> Gentlemen, damn it. <laughs> I just love that title. That's such a great name for a group of guys. There and uh, I mean it beats high five and white guys all to hell. <laughs> Seattle humor, everyone. Um, but I love that Neil that you do that. It tarot deserves its prestige. It deserves its dignity, and you bring your own to the fore when you do that. I'm quite sure. And when you're working in paranormal, parapsychological work to any degree, we're thrilled to have you with us, Neil. We need to do this more often. And I wish you all the success in the world with your intensive return to practice of the tarot and with the Port Gamble Conference and all your other activities. It's a real pleasure to talk to you anytime. You're a real pro, including on the radio. Well, I really appreciate that. And as always, it's it's so much fun to come on this show. It's so conversational and so easy to talk with both of you. And I always have a really good time no matter what we're talking about. So again, thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. We will definitely do it again, Neil. Thank you for being with us. Coming up next. Coming up next, we have Jupiter Rising. With Eileen Grimes. And who's going to be on with her? The lovely Mary Beckman. Oh, really? Oh, we know Mary. Good times and await. We've got a couple of other great guests next week that we're going to have on our show. Alice Terry from Australia. Australia. Yeah. And she's going to do her typical great job of explaining mediumship. And she is opening up the phone lines for your calls from down under to Seattle. That's going to be a blast. And we've got Matt Swain on Haunted Rails. So we'll be doing more haunted things between now and Halloween. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful day, a safe and happy weekend. And we look forward to seeing you on the radio soon. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.